And not only did he have a relationship with the government, but he had a role in the FBI. In this world, you look out for number one. Few, if any, people take that oath to the grave. These guys are on the streets, so they're involved in, in hustling. All right, welcome back into the Original Gangsters podcast. I am Scott Bernstein. I'm here with my partners in crime, Dr. Jimmy Bucciolato. Hello. And the man behind the glass, our producer, Roberto Beauchene. Hey, now. So we're going to bring in uh, Anthony Bingy Arellata, who was a uh, former maid member of the Genovese crime family. He was one of the youngest crew bosses in the history of uh, the New York Mafia. Uh, he led the Genovese's Western Massachusetts branch in the uh, throughout most of the 2000s. Uh, he was really young at that time. He was only in his 30s. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, he, he is just turning 50, and he's turning over a new leaf in his life uh, and uh, trying to make it on the straight and narrow. But we're going to talk to him and kind of reflect on uh, his time uh, in the life, so to, so to speak, his time moving and shaking in organized crime circles out on the East Coast. He was moving with the really the, some of the biggest players that there were to move with in, in the East Coast Mafia, whether we're talking about the mob in Massachusetts or we're talking about the Mafia in New York or the mob in Connecticut. They all kind of uh, run together and, and, and him and, and his crew were kind of like the glue that kind of kept that all, uh, everyone working together and, and, and working towards the same goals and making sure that no one kind of stepped on each other's toes and uh, the, 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 the Western Massachusetts faction of the Genovese crime family was, was integral to keeping peace uh, within New England because you have a lot of different crime families that are all operating on the same turf. And, and there has to be diplomacy. So, uh, Anthony, welcome in. Thanks a lot for uh, taking some time to, to, to chat with us and chop, chop some of this stuff up. Why don't you just talk a little bit about, you know, how you were first exposed um, as, a, uh, as a youngster to kind of uh, the, the, the world of the mob and organized crime? Yeah, so when I was younger, we, uh, we all kind of grew up with that, um, that mob uh, mystique, you know, growing up. Back in the uh, 70s, early 80s, everybody was in, like, if you were Italian, the mob was in everyone's homes that were Italian, talked about. And basically, it was talked about in uh, the home I grew up in. You know, we knew who the people were. And, you know, they just, uh, the family store that we had, they used to always come in. And who's this guy? Uh, he's a mafia guy. And so it was always a presence, the schools we went to down the south then. All uh, the uh, wise guys hung around, right around the school, in the coffee shops, in the bars. So we basically, and I had family that was involved. They were always, uh, you know, you're always around. Can you kind of explain to people, like, how it worked where you were, you know, from Massachusetts, um, you grew up and you, you lived your whole life in, in Western Massachusetts in Springfield, uh, but you were a member of a New York crime family known as the Genovese crime family, which most right. people consider kind of the, the gold standard when it comes to the mob in New York. Right. Um, like so the how's the, how, how did there develop, a, how, how was there a connection developed between uh, the guys in Springfield and the New York Genovese? So the Genovese family always had a presence in Springfield going back to the even before they were the Genovese family, you know, in the 20s, 30s, and then they became the Genovese family. And basically our area, uh, Springfield, Mass, Western Mass, parts of Connecticut, were the uh, Genovese territory of what it came known as the Genovese uh, family. You know, made guys, 
that were made were made into that family, and the tradition just kept going on, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, all the way up into the present day, and it's uh, Genovese territory. I got involved as uh, living in that area. It's Genovese territory, and basically it's a, uh, you know, there's other families that, that are in the area also, patriarchas, and you have some other uh, renegade guys from other families that are, you know, on the fringes, but it's basically Genovese and uh, some patriarcha. But just so, yeah. just so, so the listeners can understand, you know, maybe people that don't have the, the background that we have, but, you know, coming from where you came from, you didn't have a choice. Like, it wasn't like you could have said, well, I want to join the, 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 the Boston mob or the Providence mob, which uh, for, for people that don't know is referred to as the patriarchal crime family. Um, you were, because of where you were uh, from, if you were going to become a member of organized crime, you had to joined the Genovese crime family, am I right? Well, not, you know, you could have. We had a guy that joined the uh, Patriarchs, and we had other guys that would come and try to recruit guys that were maybe were in prison with guys, and, you know, we had some guys that were from the Philadelphia family try to get guys uh, made into their family. We had uh, mm. a guy that got made into the Patriarcha family that was from Western Mass. So it does happen. It's just, we get along with the Patriarcha family. So we all work, we're friends. We're all friends with each other, but if, to do business, they would have to come and ask us if they had a certain business they wanted to get involved with in Western Mass. They would have to touch base with us and that's how they would get in the door. Like, and if they didn't, then, you know, we had the disputes back in the day where there was, it almost came to like a war over vending machines. But usually we all get along, and uh, so it can happen. You know, if a guy from Boston, he's with the Patriarcha family, he gets, to, you know, like in a guy from the Western Mass area, he was in prison with him, let's say, and he wants him around him, and, you know, he puts him under his wing, and they go through the proper channels. They ask the guys in the Genovese family that they're looking to make this guy with the Patriarchas, and as long as there's no beefs or whatever, because it's happened in the past with uh, guys getting made with them. Can you uh, elaborate on the situation with the vending machines? That sounds interesting. Yeah, so in like the late 80s, so uh, this particular uh, situation, we had a guy that got made with the Patriarchas. He was from uh, Western Mass, and uh, he started earning. He was a made member with the Patriarchas, and he, but he's living in Western Mass, so his rackets, you know, he's living in the area. He wants to you know, loan shark and do sports and get involved in vending joker poker machines and, you know, all kinds of, you know, drugs. But he's in our area. He's in the Genovese territory area, but he's made with the patriarchy. So it's causing a lot of problems with the families because of where he's living. So there's so many, there was a lot of sit downs going on back and forth over it. And they kind of like gave him permission to do a little bit of uh, illegal, uh, illegal activity, you know, some you know, some small bookmaking outside of the uh, Springfield area. And um, he had friends that were members of the Genovese family in our area that were friendly with him. And so they were kind of like trying to build like this little, uh, not a takeover, but influence in the area. So they were going around to the local businesses and they were telling the uh, local businesses in the Western Mass, the Genovese area, to put their vending machines in and take... Uh, and they were, they were putting their joker poker machines in all the businesses that were supposed to be our businesses. I wasn't made at the time where I was just, uh, you know, 
young. It, it was when I say our business, it was the Genovese uh, territory, and he was putting all these uh, Joker pokers in, and the local guys, Sky Valshavelli, Baba, you know, all the local guys in our area. Those were their business. That was their business. So they would go into those same businesses, and they would actually take their machines from this patriarchal family. They would take them, bust them up, and put their machines back in. So it got to the point where. There was bosses sitting down. So they were trying to get the vending machines, and there was a big war over it. And before anybody started, you know, getting people started getting shot and killed, they ended up having a big uh, indictment in the um, Connecticut area where they indicted, like, you know, 20 patriarchal guys throughout Boston and Connecticut. And them guys ended up uh, doing prison time and... uh, and it was kind of like the end of the uh, the little war that was about to take place. How, how did the Boston Providence guys that would be you know uh, would fall under the Patriarcha banner? How did they view the Western Massachusetts guys? Like, did they snub their nose at you, or did they you know no. give you the, an adequate amount of respect? Or no, we we well, based when I was younger, Springfield's more a smaller city than Boston, but we have the powerful family that we're with in New York and we're actually that family so you know our family's ways is a lot bigger a lot stronger so that's why the, the respect was mutual and plus you know we're a smaller city but we're right you know we're only an hour from Boston two hours from New York hour from Providence 20 minutes to Hartford an hour to Albany I mean everything is right around us and we made more money in our area than I believe that when I used to bring guys in from New York and they just couldn't believe what we had, we had like, a, it was like gold in our area. The money that we made, they all wanted to come to our area. These guys that would come to New York, they wanted to get houses and move up. We had it so good. So, uh, and we controlled everything. I don't think they controlled everything in their cities. So when you say controlled everything, not only illicit activities, but how about like infiltration of um, legitimate Businesses yeah, um, and, the gov- and the government, waste management, things like yeah, that. Yeah, we had we had all of it. We had the, uh, the you know, the, the the bars, the restaurants, the strip clubs, nightclubs. All of that was ours. We had all of uh, the vending business, all of it. We had um, every illegal business that there was. We had a lock on it. It was all ours. Sports, loan sharking, and the drugs was done on the sneak, but we still had a lock on uh, a lot just about all the marijuana and which wasn't, you know, that was done on the sneak, but we still had a uh, our, you know, the control of it. We had all the, um, politicians like, uh, yeah, the district attorney in your pocket, the district attorney, Bruno had him for like, well, the, well not just Bruno, but that faction, the Chevelli and Bruno faction had him for, uh, close to, I don't know, 25 years. Nobody got indicted. That was our friendly with Bruno or Chevelli. Nobody got indicted, and even if they did get arrested, the charges would always disappear. Uh, try to uh, let some of the listeners know about the, the characters that you grew up around, guys like uh, uh, Frankie Skyball, Scabelli, uh, Big Al Bruno. Um, I know you, you had a, a buddy that was a, um, a, a bookie named Lou the Shoe. A lot of guys right. with colorful nicknames and, and that lived colorful lives. Uh, maybe just you know, talk about you know, those characters uh, in your background. What pertaining to me or just yeah, just like who was who was Frankie Skyball? Yeah, Skyball was uh, you know a mafia lifelong mafia 
ruthless little, he was only like five foot five, and a vicious little guy. He had his brothers. His brother was a made guy, Albert Babette. He's the one that had the vending machine. Basically, they had a, you know, they were like the Anjulos in Boston. They were like the Chabellich were like them, but only in Springfield. So they were the, know, they, they were the bosses on a day to day basis in Springfield. Were the well, uh, the Scabelli the brothers. Boss was Big No Sam. He was the boss, and he died in um, eighty, I think eighty four, right around there. Yeah. And uh, but wasn't Bob, wasn't the Scabellis though running stuff for uh, Big No Sam like for the previous 10 or 15 years before he died yeah well that's the same as any made guy they got he, they were soldiers they right. were underneath sam they were you know doing the same thing any mobster would do only sam was the boss and when he died skyball became the boss and uh you know they continued doing things running things and they had a lock they really did they the whole our whole area they had a everything was a firm grip on everything and we had the politicians we had the, uh, like you said, we had everything in our area. There wasn't anything we wanted. And uh, Baba, his brother, had a vending business. The money that they were making, the one that they had, their end alone was 150000 going back to the 70s. A week, they would make 150000 their end from all the bars and restaurants that they had the machines in. That went on until they didn't get arrested until 2001, I think. And they were making 150000 back in the 70s. They were making well over that in the, uh, you know, 90s, 2000s, when they finally ended up getting arrested for that. And Al, and Al Bruno, for people uh, that don't know, Al Bruno was a protege of Frankie Skyball and then eventually kind of became a, a mentoring figure to Anthony. He was, uh, uh, Shabelli was his, uh, the guy that brought him around, and he was a soldier, and he wasn't, you know... He did his thing. He was, um, you know, an earner. He was... He's kind of a larger-than-life figure, right? Like uh, a guy that kind of cut a a movie-land-type mobster where people around town, they would see him and start whispering, and he was someone that would, you know, uh, walk around town glad-handing and really kind yeah. of reveling the role of, of, of mob leader. Yes, yeah. It, well, he didn't become a mob leader till later, but he, he, loved, he loved the life that he lived, and... You know, he was an unbelievable hustler. He was, you know, he was up early, out late, and, you know, I don't know when a year slept. Made lots of money for the Chevalis. I mean, did a lot of things for them. And, uh, yeah, he was like that. He and was, he was uh, a politician. He was someone, you know, yeah. you, and you kind of took this from him a little bit, too, where you could seamlessly interact with multiple crime families and, and multiple factions, uh, making sure that, you know, everyone was kind of working together. So, you know, uh, Al at first and then eventually, you know, you kind of took his place as a guy that would, you know, arrange meetings for the Boston guys to meet with the Springfield guys, for the Genovese guys to meet with uh, Connecticut guys. You know, you were, you were greasing some of those wheels. Yeah, I, I ended up later on doing that, but I did that my whole life anyway, just being a you know, a hustler, and, and when you're, you're out on the streets, you're meeting everybody, so I knew a lot of the guys on my own. Um, when I, I came around Bruno, I met, obviously, I met a lot more, and a lot of guys I had already known and did business with, I've already known on my own. I mean, we were doing business, you know, and Bruno never knew about it, but, you know, that's what you do when you're on the streets. Everyone's making money. So you are a person who is earning money for the organization, and does Big L Bruno sponsor you for becoming a, a made 
man, which is uh, where a person is a formal member of a Cosa Nostra organization. Is that is that how that works? Big Al sponsors you? Yeah, well, he, you know, he would spot, he had a boss, so he would do as he proposed me. He And he proposed me, like, three or four different times in my life. And, you know, I'd get in a, a beep or whatever we get, and then he'd, he'd take me off the, the list, and then I'm back around him and put me back on the list, and then I'd get caught with selling drugs, and he'd take me back off the list. And, so, I mean, we went back and forth. But, yeah, he would uh, he would go to his boss, and he'd say, I like this kid, Anthony. Um, they, you know, obviously they know me, my family, my whole life. And, uh, he says, I'm going to propose him. So that means that, uh, you know, providing maybe you shoot somebody or you've been around and they open up the books and they want to make you, you know, the propose means that when they're ready, that day comes, you're going to, this guy's going to propose you into membership of the family. And, uh, he, he did that with me. Like I said, three or four times. I, I didn't get made because of him, but he did propose me in the, uh, in my life, like three or four different times to get made. So just so the listeners understand, in order to become a, a full-fledged member of an organized crime family, in order to be inducted or what we call made, quote unquote, uh, another member of that crime family needs to vouch for you or sponsor you or or, uh, or put your name into a, a, a hat to eventually be selected to become a member of, of that crime family. So you need uh, sponsorship. Right. You need someone that's going to, if something happens, they're going to come kill you if you don't follow the rules of that family or they're going to get killed. Yeah, so it's a fragile so. balance because the person that you're vouching for, the person that you're yeah. sponsoring, you're then responsible for. If anything right. uh, bad happens because of that person, you're the one right. who's going who's gonna to feel the, the wrath of, of that crime family. Exactly. So when I got caught, when Bruno proposed me, to become a member in the early, in the mid nineties, um, so I was on my way, you know, and like I said, I was proposed. So when the day came and they were going to make guys, I was going to be one of the guys made. But I happened to get caught selling uh, drugs, marijuana, and that was a no no to them. They didn't want you selling drugs, and I didn't tell Bruno I was selling drugs. So when I got caught, now it went from them going to propose me to him wanting to kill me, and uh, so. Obviously, that's one of the times that he took me off the list of getting made. So, and then, and then there was talks like, uh, and then there was, you know, let's just say I was made under him. Either, you know, they could go to him and say, kill me, or they might kill us both, thinking that he was in on it, the drugs with me, and they would kill him too. Or let's just say I didn't come around no more, they would kill him, maybe, you know, whatever. But that's, you know, if I was actually made and we broke that rule, he would be facing the same as me unless he uh, killed me. I mean, it's a fragile situation when you're sponsoring someone uh, into a crime family. You, right. you have to be 100%, if not 150% confident that this person yeah, is going to represent absolutely. your interests as much as they're representing their own interests. Because right. if, you, if you bring someone in that turns out to be a bad apple, you're the one who's going to be held responsible for it. Right. That's why nobody wants to do it. Yeah. Nobody wants to, you know, really, you know, put themselves out there like that, you know, with them type of rules because it's a big responsibility and basically you're you're marrying the guy or or this guy is becoming your one of your kids. You're you're watching over him like that. You gotta know every single thing he's doing. So how how uh how much interaction did you guys have with the Irish mob um out of Southie? I don't think the uh Bruno and them had uh, a lot of interactions. Maybe back in the day, I I had a lot, but I don't think because I sold 
you know, drugs. And uh, so I, and I was in prison at a young age and I met all them uh, Irish kids and, and that's how I got my, my presence with Southie guys. And uh, Were people talking I, about Whitey Bulger, though, like in, oh, yeah. in, in Springfield in the early 90s where people like there's, not, there's this crazy Irish godfather out, out in Boston that's uh, taken not, over the city? No, nah, not really. Uh, they didn't talk about him unless guy, the guys that talked about him were guys that were to state prison and were around, uh, you know, because this is before like social media. And unless you were into state prison or... You really and and these guys had their own business going on. They didn't talk about Whitey, but um, if you knew anybody from Southie, Charlestown, Boston area, then you definitely talked or knew about Whitey, and you knew what kind of dude he was from the guys that were in prison with that you become friends with. And like I said, when I came out on the streets, I did business with these guys, sold a lot of drugs with them. I was always in Southie. I've been at places where Whitey actually was, um, in bars. So that's how I got involved with the Irish what's, what, what's monsters. South, kind of describe uh, what, what South Boston's like. What was that neighborhood like back then? South Boston back then was a uh, not what it is today. Today, I was talking to my friend, and he uh, the house that we used to go to uh, was probably, he told me this, was probably worth maybe 150000 back in the, uh, the 90s when I was going there. And he says that same house in that same area is like over a million dollars today that they really... Uh, putting a lot of uh, money into Southie, but back then it was a, it was, it was an Irish, it was like, you know what it was? It was like Springfield, like Italian with that, uh, mafia mystique over us in our area. They had this, um, Irish mob presence in Southie and they were like Irish gangsters. They were, uh, they were true, ballsy, tough, crazy, you know, just like we were. In uh, in our area, as Italians, they were like that in their area of Southie. And they were known to, to, to dabble in a lot of drug activity, right? Anything they could. They had, like, uh, they did these same uh, things. They did loan sharking. They did uh, um, sports. They, they were involved in extortions. They, uh, but drugs was another thing that they were involved in. They were, they were, they were like, uh, the same thing, an organization, only they just weren't, uh, they were an Irish, they had Italians, you know, in their crew with them that were making money with them. Were you surprised that it took the federal government so long to find Whitey Bulger? Not really. You know, you got that kind of money and you just stay under the radar. Um, and you're, and you're, you got to be very, very smart, you know, obviously knew not to contact certain people you know once you get out of the area and you live a low-key life you got to be lucky too what what were your uh, thoughts when when you first heard about whitey bulger's um murder in prison Uh, can you can you walk us through that how you found out about that and what were your well let's also give people kind of a primer to know that anthony's former best friend and right-hand man top lieutenant freddie g has killed whitey bulger uh, this happened a couple months ago uh, in a uh, uh, federal correctional facility in West Virginia, and it became known within hours of Whitey being beaten to death that this Freddie Gius from Springfield was the culprit, and that was Anthony's go-to guy. So that's that's where we when we when we 
you know, kick off this conversation just for people to know. I mean, this Anthony was very close to the guy that ended up uh, uh, doing away with Whitey. So kind of maybe answer Aunt Jimmy's question about you know, what do you remember that that morning when that news broke? And it was it was worldwide news. I mean, it was being covered all around the world. Yeah. So I got a, a, a friend of mine told me they said uh, Whitey died, but they didn't say he was murdered. They just said he died. So I said, yeah, who, you know, like, who gives a fuck? You know, he died. <laughs> but then when I found out that uh, there was, uh, he was murdered, and then I found out that he was in West Virginia, I knew right away Freddie was involved 100%. No one had to, you know, tell me if he was in the same place there. Uh, and, and again, I'm not saying it, it was him alone or whatever, but if, if he was murdered, he definitely was one of the, somebody that was definitely one of the killers. Freddie's not denying it. So it's not like well, we're, yeah, we're, we're not disparaging not. him uh, or, or, or making dispersions yeah. uh, on his character. I mean, he, he told the people at the prison that pretty much yeah. it, it admitted to doing it. And he's probably doing that to save the uh, other guys that were involved. Like, he acted alone. That's how he is. He's going to take the blame and get the other guys off. And, and you know, that's how he is. And, uh, and I knew right away he was at that West Virginia prison. He definitely killed him. So kind of de- uh, describe to the audience uh, who Freddie Gius was. So Freddie and me became friends in the early 90s. I was in prison with his brother, uh, Ty. We both went to uh, prison at a young age. And uh, we met in prison, became very close. We were supposed to get out of prison together. I got out in 91. He was supposed to, Ty was supposed to get out right after me, but he ended up uh, viciously assaulting a uh, a prison guard, and he had to do like five more years. So he didn't get out until I think 95, right around there. And in the meantime, I met Freddie, you know, through prison visits. And then when I got out, me and him just became instant friends. And, you know, we hustled the streets together. We did a lot of, you know, we did everything together. We We made made lots of money we hurt lots of people we um and so me and freddie became very close you guys committed murders together yeah yeah we did that we uh and we did everything together there wasn't uh and we had like a, a really um he was my friend he wasn't like my underling or my uh i told him what to do that wasn't my relationship with him me and him were friends as far as the mafia goes, and he was in my crew, and he was, yeah, he, we were we were in a crew, but he was my friend. What was his reputation on the streets? A ballsy kid, but he didn't really have, uh, he was, a, you know, everyone liked Freddie. He was just uh, no fear, you know, all of them, him, his brother, they have no fear. And uh, we he had a reputation of uh, just laid back. Uh, he was a laid back ball buster have lots of fun and if there was something that you violent he was right there ready right by your side um he liked to make money on the street you know he uh he really got his name after like he came out of prison in uh 2001 um he did a uh, he did some state time they uh they robbed a tight you know a truck and uh they went to prison when he got out in 2001 he started to uh assert himself more on the streets him and him and his brother and again they were my friends but he started to assert himself as you know robbing more drug dealers uh get involved more on the street stuff organized parts not just like robbing trucks and stuff he started you know loan sharking a little money um we started he started doing some weed with me a little 
you know, he was selling cocaine. He started getting more into things like that. Not, not really. He had some sports guys and things like that, but very small stuff like that. And uh, the loan shark, and he didn't really like that either. So that's when he started asserting himself more and after he got to prison, late 2001. That's pretty much when he uh, got his name on the streets more of, uh, you know, into the mafia circles after one and being around me. Did Freddie have some kind of pre-existing feud with Whitey Bulger or disagreement, or is this this something else, the, the, the incident that just occurred? Well, he was, uh, so he, he, there's stories that I heard this too, when I actually spoke to certain people that are friends with these people, and that he was uh, in prison with a, a guy that Whitey framed for a murder. This guy had to do a life sentence because Whitey framed him for a murder that Whitey actually committed. The guy ended up um, doing like 30-something years, and uh, he ended up overturning the case, and he's out on the streets now, but... Freddie was locked up with him for some time and somebody put out like a little angle that it could have been because of his friendship with him that he, you know, he killed the guy. But uh, even if he never met the guy, he was going to kill Whitey that day, no matter what. I I mean, Whitey was exposed as a rat and someone that was considered really a, you know, a radioactive in, in, in the underworld once that happened. So, I mean, he, right. he was really in danger wherever he went, whatever prison he went. Right. Um, it and just so happens that they send him to a prison in West Virginia that had a lot of guys that were from Massachusetts that were intimately or had intimate knowledge of, of, of Whitey's, um, his cooperation and, and the fact that he had given a lot of them up. So is that an accident? No, I don't think it was. They I, sent I, th- I think I think <laughs> there was a, I think there was a conspiracy <laughs> in the government to right. put him in a place where he was murdered. Right. I mean, that's my belief. All, right. Whitey, all he had to do, see, Whitey didn't believe he was an informant. So all he had to do was go and say, "Don't put me out in population," and that's it. He doesn't get killed that day. But he really, in his head, doesn't think he's an informant. He thinks that he corrupted the FBI. And that's what these guys do today. They, and you know, I'm sure you know lots of guys, mafia guys, positions of high-ranking guys. They use connections with law enforcement, and they and, and they and they think that it's not a form of ratting, but but they're getting their enemies taken off the streets. What is that? That's that's an informant. You're just not telling on your crew, but you're but you're getting your enemies taken off the streets. And then obviously you're using the the government to get inside information. Like it's great to have a state trooper come up and tell you, hey, don't talk in your car, there's a listening device in it. Or don't go into this building, there's uh, they're surveilling you and there's listening, there's bugs in it. Yeah, that's great. You're using the government for your help, but that either takes money to pay them or you're giving them something in return for giving you that information. Like you're throwing them something and a lot of these guys, that's what they do. So Whitey started off getting information from this guy, but he was given information on his enemies. And once he was given information on them, you know, who's to say who's, he gets into a beef with a guy and his crew. Now he can give information on that guy. That's an informant. And that's what you have today a lot of. You have guys that are in the positions of power and they have them some type of connection with law enforcement where they pick and choose what they, who they want on the streets and who they don't. Anthony, I really appreciate yeah, it. Take care, right. Anthony. All right, Thank Jim. you. Good talking to you. All right, man. Bye. All right, yeah. Bye-bye.